from the EAH team, welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. So Alicia, how's it all going? Absolutely a well-needed break. That definitely was, I mean, I was in India first for, I think, 10 days, and then I was at COP from the 27th of November all the way to December 12th, and and really, like, in events at least five or six a day. So it, I was exhausted. I, I was a heap. I can't believe that I was able to record the, the COP special. <laughs> the COP special is now going to be like a wilted let, iceberg lettuce leaf. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, there was so much going on at COP, though, and I mean, just even those, even that snapshot, you know, you barely probably scratched the surface. I mean, you actually told me off at the end of that one because you were saying you felt like, uh, you know, and this is this, I guess, is inevitable with something as big as COP, but you sort of felt, given all the events that you've been able to attend, and uh, for the listeners, Alicia really did attend a lot. I was really only there for about three or so days. Um, you said that actually finance had been touched on quite a bit throughout COP, um, and I thought maybe it was a good opportunity just to ask you for our listeners what on the finance side in particular was raised and and why did you think that was interesting well i think there were a number of of things that were that were organized that uh, one i wasn't able not able to go to but i really wanted to which was by the all of the export credit agencies and they are getting together to find ways to make it easier and uh, less expensive for all of these projects to get equipment from Europe or, you know, from all of the OECD countries. There's also this new group, WIDA, which has been around for 10 years, and they want to be a one-stop shop for hydrogen. They have the OECD, WEF, a number of different members. But, you know, they just started talking to the private sector recently, and but there is quite a, a lot of money. And then in a number of sessions that I participated in where I spoke, I actually talked about the need for really opening our pockets everywhere because there's a lot of money that is not spent. And and one of the things that I brought up that, that people took a, a liking to and, and I think we will pursue further are the military offset sort of credits. So every time a, a country sells, like a U.S. sells, I don't know, something from Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, or it could be anything, it could be even just a phone, like, you know, it doesn't have to be military. They have to invest 20% of what they sold back into that country. And the rules for investment vary by country. But one of the things that is most important is that the investment has to be in a startup, like a develop, like a greenfield. It has to be in a company that has nothing. They cannot have be profitable. They can't even really have been in existence for very long. So you're, you're really getting in at the ground floor. 
and it has to be good for society. So there's different rules in different countries, but I don't see why these projects, hydrogen projects or, or you know, ammonia or any, any of these sort of affiliate projects aren't just the perfect fit for this. And it's estimated that there's about a trillion dollars unspent in this pocket alone. And the, keep in mind as well that these country, these companies really want to spend the money because it's holding them back from selling more. So it is actually really something that everybody could win on and people just don't know about it. It's like the dark world of military offsets, but it is quite easy to access. And I think that a lot of people got very excited about that. Um, But it's not all like U.S. to Saudi or to specific countries like, you know, Australia. Australia has offsets. So if we sell something to Australia, Australia, you have to put back like 20 percent into a project like this. So this is really, this is free money, basically. I mean, in the past, a number of these companies have invested in shrimp farms or because they don't know anything about anything in the country except what they sell. So it's just, this is such a great fit, I think. Um, so people seem, I think they're going to run with that. And that we'll, we're going to see some of that at the next COP. And then the other one, I think, which is really interesting right now, I don't know if you saw this, but Swiss Re and another reinsurance company just stepped down from ever providing reinsurance to oil and gas. So they're in Europe and, you know, they have stricter standards and they will no longer provide reinsurance to oil and gas. Oil and gas normally provides their own insurance, but they need to get reinsurance. So if this continues and reinsurance is actually, you know, there's been a couple breakups of reinsurance groups in the past several years this is going to have a big impact on where people spend their money because if you can't get insurance you're not going to get financing if you don't get financing you're not going to have the best you know return on assets return on investment and that's what drives oil and gas companies so they will have an additional reason to do green projects i mean it's super interesting reference insurance i mean for my sins i as you know and some of our listeners know i used to work as an insurance broker at lloyd's of london and it is, I think people completely underestimate how much leverage parts of the insurance sector really does have in this space. Um, you know, I, I, a weird one was when um, the Russian sanctions first started with Ukraine, because essentially Lloyd's of London refused, uh, I think that's something like 90% of the global aviation market for insurance. And they basically just said, right, well, we're not insuring Russia. And so the entire Russian air fleet basically got grounded or had to be underwritten by the Russian state. So it can be really powerful, these types of things where, where there is kind of an effective cutaway. And, and I, actually, I mean, this teases us almost perfectly this year. It's almost like you read my mind. Teases up perfectly for this week's discussion, uh, talking about the role that large financial institutions can play. We have with us Daniel Hanna, who is at Barclays Bank and is the global head of sustainable finance for the corporate investment bank arm of the business. Daniel has covered a huge array of different um, financial solutions over his career, previously working at Standard Chartered, part of the financing team around NEO, but also worked on some of the very interested blended finance projects um, during his time at Standard Chartered, including on water projects in Africa, um, around women's education. And then at Barclays has been looking to see how they can basically decarbonize their scope three emissions, which is the customers they finance. So it should be a really interesting discussion to hear from Daniel about his views of COP, his views on the role that finance can play in organizations like Barclays can play in decarbonization, specifically the kind of products that they're looking to offer the market. And um, yeah, it should be, uh, should be good fun to, to hear what he has to say. 
So Daniel, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. And very selfishly, I've actually got you all to myself. So unfortunately, you're stuck with all my questions. But um, I thought maybe just to get everyone going, um, because um, many of our listeners wouldn't have had the chance to have learned much about you before. I thought it'd be great if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about what you and Barclays are doing in this space. And then I want to pick your brains on all things COP28, the hydrogen world and a bit of predictions for uh, for 2024. So uh, without further ado, can I ask you to share a little bit about yourself? Well, Chris, thank you. Uh, I am an avid listener to this podcast and a, and a huge fan of um, the work that you've been doing here and obviously uh, and the great innovation that you've been leading with ProTeam as well. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I currently work as the Global Head of Sustainable Finance for the Corporate Investment Bank at Barclays Bank. I've been with Barclays just over a year and a half. And before that, I set up and ran sustainable finance for another British bank uh, called Standard Chartered. Um, at Barclays, I'm very much focused around sort of two things, really. Um, one is a commitment that we've made to mobilize a trillion dollars of transition and sustainable finance by 2030. And the second, to align all our financing activities that we do and support our clients towards a net zero pathway. And, and we actually see hydrogen as a, as a really important part of that. Barclays research sort of suggests that the sort of widespread deployment of blue and green hydrogen could reduce up to five gigatons of CO2 emissions by 2050, with a sort of cumulative 80 gigatons cumulatively saved over the next 30 years. And I, I think we see it as a really important part of the whole toolkit of actually how do we really achieve net zero? Um, because I think there's lots of things that you can kind of model, but the world, the real world is not a model. And I think where, for example, there isn't access to easily plugging into a electrified powered by renewables grid, or where there are areas which are sort of in the sort of harder to abate, the harder to decarbonize space, where you want to shift away from carbon, things like I don't know, shipping and others, we, we see that as being an important potential tool as well. As a bank, we've done quite a bit in hydrogen. We have a a, a relationship um, with an early stage incubator of great companies and ideas called Unreasonable, which has been running since 2016. That's supported over 310 companies who've gone on to raise over 11 billion of financing and several hydrogen companies have kind of come through there. As a bank, quite unusually, we actually have 500 million pounds that are investing in early stage companies, including obviously um, Proteum. Um, but also in two other hydrogen companies, one Zero Avia, which is looking at hydrogen fuel cells to decarbonize aviation, um, and the other Geopora, which effectively is looking at carbon, a low carbon or, or really emission-free solutions for provision of energy solutions in things like construction and others where you can't access the grid. So we've got some experience working with those early stage companies. And then actually we've got a banking team as well that, that's been working with a number of hydrogen companies this year, we helped Omnium, which is a sort of green hydrogen electrolyzer company, raise $250 million. And previously, we were involved in the IPO of Hefner in Europe as well. So quite a lot going on within Barclays. And, and we're really keen to see how we can sort of support this nascent technology really scale up uh, where it can lead to true decarbonization. 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot going on within within Barclays on that, and we'll probably pick in. And um, maybe before that, just as a bit of a personal story, because we always ask people to do a bit of personal. What on earth got you interested in hydrogen in the first place, Daniel? I mean, you know, it's not sort of fix something that as a kid you sit down and you think, you know, when I grow up, I want to work in hydrogen. So <laughs> what what is it that got you motivated about the space? And, and maybe you could also tell us a little bit about sort of the first time you actually were doing a deal or working kind of on a opportunity in the hydrogen space. Yeah, it's a great question. So I I think earlier on in my career, I did a lot of work around emerging markets. And in particular, I sort of developed a a capability and and the team, my team developed a capability in what's called blended finance. So it's working with the likes of the World Bank or in the UK, British International Investment, sort of development finance to um, sort of blend that type of capital with commercial capital for positive impact. And so I've been involved in financing water projects in Angola that have given clean water to a million people or other types of uh, or sort of a bond for uh, underprivileged women in in low-income Asia and as part of that discussion it increasingly became one around climate so I was involved in the IFC scaling solar program at a very early stage in some African countries and increasingly looking at how do you do renewables financing and on the back of that I sort of set up the sustainable finance team and actually, my first sort of period where I really came across hydrogens, we started thinking about how do you help companies and countries really leapfrog to low carbon technologies? And I think there's a huge opportunity actually in, in a large swathe of the world where they haven't fully industrialized. And actually, rather than going into carbon intensive sectors, maybe they can skip a step and look at that. And so we started looking at hydrogen as a potential technology. Now, there's lots of issues, and I'm sure we can get into them, about why that's a lot of, there's a lot of challenge there. But the first project that I got involved in, less so much in sort of low-income world, but was in Saudi Arabia with NYOM and the financing of uh, the green hydrogen project there. And really, that took a lot of understanding. I mean, it was the first project that the bank I was working for at the time had looked at from a hydrogen perspective. So understanding the technology and the particular structure of that kind of transaction. That was kind of my first experience of it and, and really starting trying to un, un, understand and analyze the market. And then from there, really, I think what's been wonderful at working at Barclays is it's just the opportunity to work with real innovators and early stage companies, because it does feel to me that you know, uh, the sort of real breakthrough on on hydrogen is going to happen in in particularly in the US, given the Inflation Reduction Act, but at these kind of large scale projects. And then some of the smaller, really interesting solutions that things like Proteum are looking at uh, very specifically, but it's probably going to be a developed world story for the next five, 10 years. And then that will get exported into emerging markets um, at a later date. Yeah, and there's so much there to unpack and actually quite hard to know where to sort of start from with it. But I thought maybe what we could start with first is, you know, obviously we just had COP28. Barclays had a significant presence at COP28, as did many others. But I know you were also in some quite interesting discussions. And for those listeners, uh, we always have a danger when we get a guest on the podcast that before we actually hit start, we end up talking and getting all excited. And then we go, wait, we have to save this for the the recording side, but you know, you, you just were speaking there about Naomi and you were speaking about blended finance. I mean, these were two quite topical points actually for COP28. Many people said this was sort of the first COP that really talked about hydrogen and had it very much front and center. And certainly Mazda and Mubadla and and you know the UAE has made a big move on hydrogen. Um, and many people also said that you know this was one of the big COPs to talk about the just element of a transition as well, right? And that idea was quite center stage, you know, the loss and damage claim fund that was set up again, that was a big milestone. So 
what was your sort of take kind of having been there and listening to some of these discussions of people there on all the, you know, I guess maybe condensing the question a bit more. Did you feel that actually for hydrogen and for the types of financing that you'd worked on in the past as blended financing, that COP28 is a new exciting chapter for the space that's going to help move things forward? Or, you know, for people in the hydrogen world, is COP28 a little bit of a side note? And the real action is the IRA, the recently announced HAR1 projects, and then in Europe, obviously, the European Hydrogen Bank. Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. And I think, I mean, look, so I, I, I think COPs, you know, we can overstate, I think, the impact of COP, particularly on, on sort of near-term development of specific technology and projects. Uh, but it does provide quite a helpful barometer of, of certain things. And I think last year at, at, in Sharm el-Sheikh, I thought that was the first COP where really hydrogen took on much more of a centre stage. I remember very clearly at Glasgow, I don't, I don't think, um, or at least I didn't come across any significant mention of hydrogen at all, whereas it started really being pushed, I think, at, at Sharm el-Sheikh and given the profile. And then I think, as you say, at this COP, it became a bit more of a mainstream topic. Um, and I think particularly given the commitments that, as you mentioned, Paco Mazdar and others have made out of the UAE in terms of green hydrogen, the work that has been going on in Saudi Arabia with Neom, there was kind of this, this feeling of momentum. Uh, and certainly, you know, the, in terms of projects that we see, I think this year, we've, we've seen, what is it, like a 46% increase in the amount of projects announced. Sorry, I think it's a 46% increase in the amount of public money committed to hydrogen uh, and a near, uh, certainly a significant increase in the number of projects announced. At COP, I think there were a number of sort of these partnerships or announcements made, whether it was between Mazdar and a bridge roller or between um, Mazdar and sort of uh, High 24 in Paris yeah, um, sure. as well. So so I think that, that definitely that, that sense of things. What I thought was quite interesting and different about this COP was there was a much more detailed discussion around how do you scale this up? I think there was sort of We've had announcements before, but actually here at this COP, there was a recognition of, okay, but there is a challenge in financing this scale up in hydrogen and other climate, new wave of climate technologies. How do you crack that? And so I felt that was actually a really positive development. But what was interesting from my side, and I wonder whether you, you would agree, is, you know, you were speaking about the announcement of projects at COP and Hydrogen Council put out a big um, paper sort of talking about sort of, you know, you know, a little bit of a stock take for hydrogen, sort of, again, reflecting, as you say, something, you know, a significant increase in projects and, and increase in FIDs. But if you unpack the numbers, most of the big FIDs that were being made really were in China, you know, or, or actually were sort of in the Middle East, you know, actually very little progress, relatively speaking, certainly in Europe um, and quite slow in other markets. Uh, and I think that was one of the themes that to me came across quite strongly at COP, which was the great game of hydrogen, if you like, where is, you know, where the first big scale project is going to be built and who's going to be really dominating the space. I, I sort of left COP with a little bit of a sense of Europe's already lost the great game, right? I, I sort of left COP with the sense of Europe might produce 10, 20, 30% of its own green hydrogen with big projects, but by and large, when you hear what's being planned by Reliance in India, or when you look at what PIF is funding in Saudi or Mazda is doing in the UAE, when you look at, you know, some of the plans you hear for sort of Brazil, some enormous projects in Brazil relatively recently announced, um, the IRA, and then of course China, the sort of uh, the elephant in the room, so to say, and, and frankly Oman and Australia as well. 
you, you don't really see anything like that same momentum in Europe. And look at the HAR1 results, hydrogen allocation round one results in the UK, to, which just came out today. So that's the 14th of December for listeners. The highest single project announced, I think, was 24 megawatts. So 125 megawatts total supported. I mean, Daniel, I think phase one of uh, Naom is is bigger than that. <laughs> Do you sort of share that sentiment that the sort of the larger projects, you know, at least for now, there's a very clear trend that really Europe is actually from being perhaps the lead has fallen quite materially behind where the rest of the world is now on projects? Well, I think we're still at very early stage of of sort of, I think we're at you know, announcements, the number of projects going FID, yes, it's ticking up, but it's still relatively low. So I, I I wouldn't say Europe has lost things. But what I do think is, I mean, I sort of see that we're probably going to get to the point where you can scale green hydrogen uh, and these sort of mega projects where you can really get down the cost curve and, and produce this at scale at the lowest possible cost at kind of one end. And at the other end, I sort of expect us to see a number of sort of smaller scale, more sort of bespoke kind of decarbonisation solutions in particularly difficult areas to hard to abate. And so I suspect we're going to kind of get this barbell approach going forward. But I mean, Chris, maybe let me ask you a question, which is, do you think we've now cracked the way that we are going to transport green hydrogen, the kind of the the carrier vehicle, um, and then the relative clarity around the costs of that because i think actually that to, to your sort of your framing that's going to drive quite a lot of how the global market for this all develops yeah it's a great question i mean you know my, my sentiment as i've bored probably listeners with before on the show is is always been that i think it will be a distributed play for a lot of the markets like the uk and europe so and my thesis behind that was really that that would unlock the pipeline network because i don't personally think that the capital exists within either the utilities or within the governments in most western european nations to say today where there's still so much demand uncertainty that they're going to build and fund massive pipeline networks certainly that has always been my my position uh, i think in the uk i still remain fairly strongly of that view that you're going to have to see a build-up of different network nodes and hubs across the uk potentially catalyzed by the blue hydrogen projects if they happen but I, again i'm skeptical on that effectively these distributed sites build up and then you will see large-scale green ammonia or pipelines connecting in from other sources and then that will start to come through Europe, however, in some areas is moving faster than I had anticipated. So Germany has certainly been announcing quite some bold moves around their pipeline network. And I think there's been a big announcement again pre-COP around um, the German Business Federation getting together with their something like 9,800 members and saying with the government and the utilities, right, we need to actually step a plan out to roll you know, several thousand kilometers of pipelines across Germany. Um, and in the Netherlands, they've solved the problem of how do you fund this by basically telling the utility you have to do it, so get on with it, and just pushing the cost on to the, uh, the utility. So that, to me, feels like, at least in the European model, that it will be pipeline, and that's likely where it will go. And some of that might be pipe from the Middle East, but the rest might just be ammonia landed and then cracked, frankly, at LNG terminals or oil bunkering depots and just repurposing those sites. I'm not convinced necessarily for the rest of the world that you're going to have always that same strategy i think it will be a bit more muddled um and i don't quite see green ammonia playing the role that lng does today although again we can debate the pros and cons of that but um 
that's probably my my sense of things. Um, but I'm I'm not seeing LOHC liquid hydrogen or liquid organic hydrogen carriers coming in. I think green methanol supply is very limited, and I'm not seeing liquid hydrogen transport by boat as being you know by ship as being really a credible option from where we are today. Yeah, and and by the way, I mean obviously congratulations to Proteum on the um, the award of UK Department of Transport hydrogen aggregated logistics project. Yeah, this month. Thank you. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Losing track of time. No, it, that, I mean that sort of um, hydrogen for trans for transport for the heavy good vehicle sector definitely is picking up. I mean, you're seeing a lot more momentum in Europe around High Lane and what they're doing there. Uh, the High Trucks program in the Netherlands, our projects at um, High Hall in the UK, and then other hubs in North America. So that is picking up. The most unconventional, I have to say, recent one, Daniel, that someone was talking to me about was compressed hydrogen moved by train. Where there's a project in Europe that's looking to move transcontinental shipments of hydrogen by rail, enabled by some of the trading um, companies. So this is kind of the the Vitals, the Trafigurus, the Mercurius of this world using kind of their existing infrastructure and network relationships around coal movements and around diesel and, and others and looking to do that with compressed hydrogen. So I, I've never really seen anyone looking at that until quite recently, but that could be... Uh, could be one to watch but i want to go back to our just, questions daniel yeah no, no but if i may just pull you together because i think i mean going back to your question about cop i think one of the other things and i'm sure you saw this a little bit as well i mean we we had two of the other companies in you know all actually three all three of the companies that we we've been investing in that are involved in hydrogen were present obviously you were there geopora and zeravia were there and i think certainly i, I speaking to the other two as well there was a lot of interest and effectively requests for potential transactions on the back of the conversation. So I think there was, there really felt like a, a tipping point in interest and in actually starting to move towards execution in a way that I hadn't felt at previous COPs, which I think is, is, is really encouraging generally. Yeah, I, I think that is true. And maybe Daniel, one thing that I wanted to get you to talk about and I thought it'd be relevant for our listeners to talk about is that in previous discussions and I hear this in conferences and I hear this on other podcasts and I read this in reports there's a series of challenges that people are facing on the equity side and there's a series of challenges people are facing on the debt side so on the debt side there's these challenges around how well does green hydrogen fit into a traditional project financing structure and if it's not project financing what alternative debt-based financing structures and products are there in the market today and then on the equity side, it was at New York Climate Week at the Barclays panel. Someone was talking about the equity story. And instead of saying the valley of death, as you've quoted many times, they spoke of the dune of doom, um, which is wonderful because it is a great name. And so sort of this idea of this double dip crisis that you have to go through in an equity fundraising um, before you come up the other side of the curve. So hammered on the equity side, hammered on the debt side and kind of innovations probably needed around both. Can you talk to those two points? What are you seeing in the market? And then how have you been as a business trying to find ways to fix those two challenges or at least provide solutions to customers and to investors and businesses to try and overcome those problems? Yeah, no, two two great points. The dunes of doom indeed. So I, I think on, on the equity story, I, I do think that there is a bit of a challenge that we've got collectively, which is the financial system has kind of become very good at scaling effectively software businesses, both from venture capital into other areas. And that there is this gap at the moment for climate techs, not just hydrogen, but other sort of capital intensive climate tech where the project kind of gets too big for your classic venture firm but it's still too nascent for your classic infrastructure firm. And it's kind of caught in between just as the company 
is is sort of going through this escalation of kind of more and more capital needing to be deployed and invested to get to scale. And so we're spending a lot of time on this kind of this missing middle of capital uh, and, and thinking through how, how does that get solved? And I think actually it goes back to one of the points, I suspect, at least it goes back to one of the points that we opened up, which is we might start importing some of the structures that were used in emerging markets to de-risk situations into more developed markets. So this idea of blending capital between, say, in the UK, UK Infrastructure Bank or in Europe using EIB type guarantees. In the US, clearly the Inflation Reduction Act and the sort of the level of tax equity that has been provided across a wide range of of technologies, including hydrogen, makes a huge difference. And certainly, I think from a hydrogen perspective, that's why a lot of projects are being sort of looked to situated in the US. And, you know, I'm even aware of a few projects that effectively were going to happen in other regions that are now shifting to the the US, just given the strength of the tax equity kind of uh, opportunity there. From a Barclays perspective, that's why we've we've hired a head of project finance and tax equity based in the US to complement our corporate finance, uh, project finance team here in, in the UK. But we're also involved in a number of conversations, not just with potential providers of sort of public capital, this kind of blended finance approach, but also people in the insurance space and, and in kind of classic sort of asset managers as well. And trying to see if there's a way of kind of combining those different types of capital to, to kind of really scale that up, if you like. Um, but I do think it is, a, it is a challenge that a lot of these technologies that we need to scale quickly from a climate perspective uh, are facing. I think on the, on the sort of on your point around broader project finance and debt, there was quite an interesting survey done by BCG earlier this year, which looked at commercial banks and sort of asked them, did a survey of commercial banks and asked them, you know, are you thinking about hydrogen? And I think more than three quarters of the banks polled sort of said, yes, they expected this to be quite a significant part of their portfolios by, say, 2030. But they kind of also admitted that they weren't really ready yet to become involved in the space. And, and you know, the reasons that they gave were, understanding of the offtake agreements uh, and effectively understanding the, the sort of the quality of that offtake risk, if you like, a broader understanding of just the technology in its own right. I think as, as we talked about, you know, for bankers generally, a lot of us need to go through a re-education around some of these technologies that we may not have dealt with. A lack of clarity around the policy environment and a sort of sense that the policy definitions are changing or, or at least are, are still a little bit in flux. And I think at COP, one of the announcements that's potentially quite important was, I think, a, a commitment for some interoperability around the different policy statements. And I'm, Chris, I'm sure you've got a perspective on that as well. And so I think there's a sort of under, there's a sort of sense in the banking community that they kind of they need to invest in their own capabilities and understanding. And then we've got to try and think about what types of projects can become bankable because of that offtake risk. Now. I think implicit in your question was like, well, okay, but that's kind of not where we are. So what are the other sort of potential solutions? And so from a Barclays perspective, we are looking at obviously how we can combine our approach with with the likes of UK Infrastructure Bank or, or others and uh, in the policy environment space, but also trying to, to see what types of kind of asset type financing could be done in the absence of that and what kind of tranching may be available to kind of look at these projects in a little bit more of a modular way. So I think 
there's a lot of kind of work that's gone going in terms, in terms of really just trying to go after that. How do we crack that scaling issue? Because I think we do see, you know, hydrogen and a number of other climate technologies needing to be scaled and want to play a role in that. And maybe just as a as a particular one on that, because, you know, while we are everything about hydrogen, it's also useful to talk across sectors. I mean, I think Barclays did quite an innovative asset financing structure for um, a battery ve- electric vehicle leasing solution product in Europe recently. Do you want to maybe sort of explain that? Because I thought that sort of is quite a good example of the sort of innovative financing we're seeing in the space. Yeah, so we did. A th- no, thanks for reminding me, Chris. Uh, it, I should have raised that myself. Um, so that we did, a, I thought, a really interesting transaction with Einride, which was a 300 million securitization. And Einride, again, a relatively early stage company looking at kind of using EVs in, in the trucking space. And we were able to sort of look through the structure at the underlying contracts that they had and effectively securitize that and then raise 300 million on the back of that. I mean, other areas like that that we're looking at at the moment as well is on on things like in the carbon credit space and thinking about whether there are structures that can also get replicated. So we're trying to look through at a number of different types of situation to see if there's ways to make situations that maybe at the first glance look difficult, but turn them into a bankable type structure. Uh, super useful and, and conscious of time i think for many people not all but for many people on the energy transition world 2023 has been maybe not if you're american but outside of america something of an anis horribilis uh certainly for the equity valuation side has been pretty tough and i think broadly for kind of growth based investments and frankly even for certain project level investments given the huge increases in rates that we saw this year a lot of core infra solar wind uh, battery everyone has just found it considerably harder to do i guess what we were doing and obviously that's taken some of the wind at least in the western world out of its sails although you know to your point earlier i think in other markets like the middle east and uh, and china and places it's a little bit different do you have any sort of thoughts going into 2024 about things that you are as a you know organization expecting to see or at least sort of things that you feel people should be looking out for in terms of markers around sustainable financing and 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 things that we should be positively potentially looking out for well i i think there's plenty to be positive about i mean i think so there's no doubt that particularly the higher interest rate cycle and i think particularly the supply chain issues in a number of the key technologies have hit the deployment of, of some of the climate tech and the valuations of companies as a result of that. But we are seeing companies still being able to raise even in these type market. I mean, we did a, I think it's the largest renewable listing or renewable sort of ecosystem listing this year for, for Next Tracker. So transaction can get done, but no doubt timing has sort of elongated. It's really important the companies hit their milestones. And I think the importance of kind of having a, a lead investor becomes has become even more Im- important. I think one of the trends that we sort of started seeing this year, uh, which I think will accelerate next year, is just the role that companies are playing. And so in terms of uh, large companies thinking about how they decarbonize their operations, um, increasingly they have venture arms that are getting involved in deals or or taking part of you know, that sort of getting that long term offtake of these types of technologies, whether it's in batteries or others. And I think that kind of link into corporates, I would expect to to continue. I mean, I think it's also important that, you know, we've got to recognize where we've come from. I mean, I think we will probably see still, despite all the challenges, a record amount of renewable capacity installed this year, like it was last year. 
I think the number of new car sales that are EVs, you know, will probably be about what one in six, one in five, maybe even. Um, you know, five years ago that was one in seventy. Um, and so I think the sort of secular trend we've had a bit of a bump is still there. The Fed has literally just sort of indicated that potentially interest rates are peaked and may actually come down next year, which could provide a little bit more of a boost. The Inflation Reduction Act there is another potential tailwind. So I think there's still a lot of capital that has been raised on this theme over the last two years with people looking for opportunities. And so I think from from that side, I, I think, you know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic and bullish about that. I think the other thing that came out that is is going to be interesting to see how that plays in is obviously the whole adaptation and resilience space. So we need a lot more, you know, if we're not mitigating things as quickly as we need to, then the world is beginning to become hotter. We probably went past one and a half degrees above industrial average this year. So we need more money in adaptation and resilience. That's already quite low. So that's another big theme. And then nature, I, I really felt there was much more of a focus around nature from this COP and I expect that to kind of continue for next year. So I think for innovative companies, entrepreneurs who've got great ideas in this space, you know, I, I'm actually pretty optimistic of what the next couple of years looks like. But sort of sticking to, you know, the basics, having a great business plan, hitting the milestones, and then being, I think, probably more thoughtful around what type of investor you want in there and the partners that you have along that road, I think are going to become more important. But yeah, I think 2024 should be really exciting. Well, I think that's a pretty fantastic way to finish up this episode. So, Daniel, Hannah, thank you so much for your time today. Real pleasure. Thanks, Chris. So, Elisa, we've had Chris doing a solo interview all on his own. And that is, I, I just, I feel very uh, sympathetic for, for Daniel, who had to uh, deal with the, the constant stream of questions. But, you know, in all seriousness, a quite broad and wide ranging set of topics kind of covered. What, what particularly stood out to you? Well, I, I think one of the things that, that they talked about a bit is the need for more clarity in policy. And I think that there have actually been a number of wins on that area. One was at COP. And then I think also the United States has made some real ground. And, and maybe I'll talk about the one at COP because uh, I think you're much better to talk about the, the U.S. But basically, one of the most important things that happened at COP was the introduction of IHTF. And that is basically is the International Hydrogen Trading Forum. It's composed of a number of different bodies, and it essentially has 80% of the world backing it already. At COP, 80% of the world had already backed it. And is essentially a way to decipher the difference between molecules of hydrogen or ammonia or other derivatives that unless you've been tracking it, you would have no idea you know, how blue or blue or green it is because each molecule is identical. So what they've introduced is a methodology that is for the whole life cycle of the molecule. And it includes, if you are making it using natural gas, then you're including the flaring, you're including everything that gets you to that molecule, the transportation, et cetera. And then each uh, ton or however you're, you're transporting your, your hydrogen will have a certificate and that certificate will use this same methodology so that you can have an emissions intensity number. So instead of having blue 
covering 35% removal all the way to 99% removal and green being considered, you know, zero emissions or close to zero emissions, you'd really be able to compare apples to apples. So you would know exactly what you're getting, even if it's made with with natural gas. Um, And I think that before that, you really couldn't trade. If you if you don't know what you have, you can't trade. Um, so this is a, was an incredibly important step, and it is really going to help with clarity for investors to actually know that they will be able to get a premium if they make a product with zero or near zero uh, emissions. And then in some categories like shipping, the, the demand is for zero or near zero, which means that to the extent that they're going to use fossil fuel based hydrogen, you know, an extremely large amount of carbon will need to be removed for them to qualify for shipping, which is regulated by one entity, as you recall. So I think there is a lot of international um, support for this. And I think that's going to help investors understand the market better. Certainly, it's going to help companies that are producing to understand that they actually were going to get credit for producing correctly and in a way that doesn't create emissions. I mean, it's it's an interesting, number one, It's that's a very significant and interesting kind of um, outcome, shall we say. Hmm. Um, I, I think the other part of this, which is, you know, maybe bleeds into something that, that I, I was kind of uh, noting in the conversation that, that Daniel and, and Chris had, you know, this theme around you know, transparency of asset uh, quality is now pretty broadly discussed and applied, right? And and we can see that looking at the the current uh, you know written version of the the forty five V guidance that was released this year, or well, late last year, I guess. And you know, there's obviously still a comment period and et cetera, et cetera. So there's scope for some level of change, but you know, tracking eligibility there inevitably speaks to the quality of the resource and the the, the uh, carbon intensity positioning of that specific resource, right? So it's, it's a very interesting aspect that we're getting a real and rather substantial push on this aspect. And to your point, getting towards standardized methodologies for assessment and calculation, because, you know, one of the great pains, I think, most folks across the, the sector have experienced the having to do multiple conversions challenge of different standards and different kind of reporting mechanisms and et cetera, et cetera. And it is certainly painful, but also it creates that uncertainty factor and more generally provides a a kind of a, a sense of inertia around kind of, will we ever get kind of recognition for our asset, which precisely to your point is the, the investor pain or challenge here. So I, I think there's a there's an emerging theme as well around this more broadly, which was quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, I really do agree with you on that. And and obviously, that's just going to help clarify things uh, quite a bit more. And I think it sort of leads into something else that I, that I noticed in the conversation. I think, you know, Chris was sort of a little self-flagellating with the EU is dead. <laughs> and uh, I think there was... You know, from the Barclays side, this this idea that, you know, we might have developed countries doing this first for, you know, 10, 15 years, and then it would sort of move on to developing countries. But I, I think that if you really look at it, you know, there's a lot of resource in developing countries. So it's another example of somewhere where you could really leapfrog 
and never have to go through um, build outs of you know infrastructure and and use of particular fossil fuels if you're able to make uh, renewables and hydrogen and ammonia yourself. So I, I do think that there will be a lot going on in developing countries. And another reason I think that is because of the very tools that are necessary for hydrogen are often found in developing countries because you have these multilateral development banks, you have these different pockets of capital that have traditionally been saved for developing countries to build infrastructure, to build sort of the basics. And they can also be used, you know, for hydrogen. And I think that it's actually the developing countries that are more used to these structures because they're still using them. And, and so, you know, they don't even need to take the uh, reminder course on project finance. They, they actually are actively using a lot of these different tools now. And, and I do think that the ECAs have gotten together and, and they are creating more creative tools even so that they can help reduce the risk. But most of them also will have a purview that's specific. Like EBRD can only go in certain countries, IFC can only go in certain countries, and the same is true for some of the um, export credit agencies. I also think there's just a lot of pockets um, that that are out there and that were discussed at COP and for the first time kind of taken seriously. I mean, I, I saw with my own eyes in in the uh, ministerials that I attended and spoke at, I saw you know people getting excited about military offset funding which you know, most people have never heard of, but there's a trillion dollars out there of unspent capital that most people don't know even exists. And the companies need to spend it in order to sell, sell more. So I really think that that would be a great pocket to pick. <laughs> and then, of course, I think that the halal financing never really gets mentioned. But, you know, with interest rates as high as they are, PIF, uh, provides halal finance for projects in Saudi and, and, and the Gulf in general. And that is basically just service fees. I mean, there's no interest because it, it's halal. So there are some other new pockets for, for these projects. I mean, the, like number, number one, there, that is an awful lot of potential levers that can be pulled in on some of these, these streams. And Reflecting briefly just on the kind of the emerging market potential here, uh, and I think we've we've spoken about this in previous episodes when we've we've had folks from the the multilaterals on, and we've had folks uh, actually developing projects in some of the emerging markets. I, I come to the kind of the, the kind of thought of like we're not getting a, a ubiquitous kind of standardized market right now it's it's you know this is not an advanced commodities market so we're going to get different shape and development profiles for regional trade we're going to get you know different kind of probably structures and to your point potentially different financing solutions depending on you know the resources that are are positioned in different places but also the uh, demand profiles that start to emerge as the first and best in in a given market. So it's it's quite an interesting moment, and, and I think Daniel spoke to this leapfrogging aspect as well, where you know dynamic solution design um, actually possibly you know leads to some changes in in where we start, and therefore the actual market evolution profile is very different potentially. Uh, depending on where you are in the world and, and what kind of 
and to your point, Alicia, is, is you know, if the financing structures are are more suitable, we'll see different different potential kind of developments emerge quicker or slower or et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's quite a lot to potentially unpack here. And it's quite, I think, important that we have seen, obviously, between between COP, but also, you know, in, in some of these forums and these, these structures that are emerging, or not maybe emerging, but, you know, uh, less standardized or, or less um, maybe familiar financing mechanisms for, for some parts of the world are going to suddenly become very, very relevant, which is a good thing, given what we are seeing live in the market now, and the you know challenges around financing projects at, at the moment. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And actually, I, I think that gives us a lot of optimism for 2024. And so we agree with the with the team there. Um, I, I think just a little bit of creativity um, and really looking for every type of of match and, and every way that we can uh, get these projects off the ground. I, I think it's ultimately going to be successful and and we really do have a lot of components um, that maybe we've forgot about but but they exist and and I think people are, are paying a lot more attention to the space and so that means that brilliant ideas will bubble up and I certainly agree that the cop really was a huge focus on hydrogen this year and and I think that it will continue to be into the future. That was everything about hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman, and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com. Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at about hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.